I don't know how to describe it other than like like a demon type of sound. But it's silhouetted, hulking, every bit of five and a half feet wide, 13 to 14 foot tall, pitch black. The one thing that ran through my mind when I had this encounter was I don't have a big enough gun. Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevnik. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bigfoot Breakdown. This week, we're going to do uh, the 1924 Mount St. Helens story as dictated by Fred Beck to his son, Ronald Beck. Um, now, we're taking this from the book that Fred Beck's son wrote, uh, and his father, Fred, dictated it. Um, there's been a lot of stuff put out about this story, and plenty of it is erroneous. So that's why I wanted to take it directly from the book. Uh, this book is called I Fought the Eight Men of Mount St. Helens, told by Fred Beck, written by R.A. Beck. I'm not going to go through the introduction, but, um, you know, we're not going to talk about the entire book because a lot of what the book is about is Fred Beck's own opinions and thoughts about all this stuff. So it's not really relevant to our discussion. We wanted to break down the story. So we'll just kind of go piece by piece and, uh, you know, we'll see, we see what sticks and what, uh, what doesn't stick. So he starts out by saying in this, just chapter one, the attack. He says, wish, I wish, first of all, to give an account of the attack until the famous incident of July 1924 um, when the hairy apes attacked our cabin. Now, he says they've been prospecting the area for six years in the Mount St. Helens and Lewis River area, southwest Washington. And he says it wasn't just a one-off incident. He says from time to time, we'd come across large tracks by creek beds and springs. And he said in 1924... I and four other miners, so there were five of them in the group, <clears throat> excuse me, were working our gold claim, the Vander White, uh, two miles east of Mount St. Helens in a deep canyon now named Ape Canyon, which was so named after the incident. So, <clears throat> excuse me, geez, I'm having a little issue today. Um, you know, there, there have been people saying that, you know, the gold claim was lost. Nobody knows where it is. They don't know where the camps or the, the cabin site was and all that stuff. And it's nonsense. Uh, you know, Fred Beck clearly said where it was. And on the east side of Mount St. Helens, and uh, we talked about it with Q&A uh, a little bit with, you know, my being involved in the military with Mount St. Helens eruption. But my buddies and I went there in November 1976, and I was given uh, the location by a college student in Portland. And this was after I met John Green and Renee DeHinden in 1975. One of these uh, students apparently talked to John Green, was writing some kind of a paper. And uh, Green gave him my phone number. And he called me to, I, I guess he was interviewing witnesses, Bigfoot witnesses for this paper. So we talked. And then during the conversation, he says, well, have you ever been to the Mount St. Helens site where the miners were attacked? I knew about the story from Green's book. And I said, no, I, we hunted uh, elk on the uh, west side of the mountain. I had never been to the east side. So he told me exactly how to find where the cabin had been located. The cabin burnt down in the 1960s. So, um, you know, we went there and we found the spot because they, uh, they had tied some, uh, oh, some small trees between trees, I guess is like, you know, places to sit down. So it was easy to find the place. Now, the location of the cabin was on the north side of the canyon, 
at the head of Ape Canyon on top of the Plains of Abraham. The Plains of Abraham is kind of a shelf on the eastern side of the mountain. So, uh, and at, when we're at the end of, you know, the story, um, in his book, R.A. Beck's book, at the end is an actual, um, it's a photocopy of the document this is exactly where the mine was. It's it's a location notice, and apparently this was filed with um, I can't see whichever county it was in, but or with the state. But uh, uh, they filed this the Vander White claim in August 1922, September 18th, and Marion Smith um, apparently was a witness. So um, at least I think that's how this is worded. It's it's not really clear, but anyhow. And, and on the Facebook page, the GRG page, I will post um, this particular document so people can see that. And it's from, it's from the book, so uh, it's, there's not a, not a question that the mine did exist. So, uh, anyway. The one thing, I guess, and I don't know what you guys think about this, but, you know, he mentions there were five of them. And I don't know, I'm not aware that any of the other participants were ever interviewed. You know, when we're talking about validity of a of a, an account, you know, we have Fred Beck's word. Um, but have any of you ever heard of any of the other participants being interviewed? Well, wasn't it one of the guys that actually, because they swore a pact amongst themselves, we're not going to say a peep, we're not going to say a word. And I love that part. <laughs> all right, we're all right. sworn to secrecy on this. Until one of us doesn't. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. On on their way out, they stopped at the ranger station at Spirit Lake, and and I saw that ranger station when we went there in '76. Um, and the first thing he did was tell the ranger what happened, even after they all said, "Okay, yeah, we're not going to say anything." Uh, yeah, the the pseudonym that was. You know, I gotta go ahead, Tom. Wasn't that Hank that did that? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm going to just say that uh, President Lincoln had a similar situation he goes i can keep a secret it's the others that i tell who can't right <laughs> you know it's interesting now he goes on to the next paragraph and he talks about and and that's the interesting thing about picking apart these stories are the details if it was a made-up story i mean he'd have to be a pretty good pretty good uh literary composure to come up with some of these details but he says, Hank, who was uh, kind of their leader, and that was a pseudonym, said uh, said he was a great hunter and a good woodsman, was always a little apprehensive after seeing the tracks, the footprints that they saw along creeks and, and springs. And that's a detail, too, Tom, that we are very familiar with, you know, with tracks around these creeks and springs. Um, oh, yes. You see those tracks and your head suddenly snaps up and starts going back and forth 180 degrees in every direction. Now, this sure. is interesting, too. He says, the A track, little? he says the tracks were large and we knew that no animal could have made them. He said the largest measured 19 inches long. Now, and, and there, there's correlations of the things like we just talked about the springs and creeks. Uh, the 19-inch tracks. Now, I'm sure it wasn't the same creature because this was back in the 1920s when we found our line of tracks up by Spirit Lake uh, the night we were there on, that was the 10th of November of 1976. We found a line of tracks going up. I mean, there were hundreds of tracks in that line. And the best we could measure, I, I can't remember if we had a tape measure. We may have had one. But those tracks measured 
around 18, 19 inches long. I want to say they were 19. Um, I always, I always kind of back off a little bit thinking about slippage in that, in that pumice, but, um, I recollect our measurement was 19 inches. So, um, you know, who knows? It may have been a descendant of the creature that he was mentioning, you know, in this passage about having 19 inch footprints, the largest ones they found. So again, he was talking about, uh, it was the middle of July and, and I can tell you plenty of things about Skamania County in that region in the middle of July, <laughs> found a lot of stuff that particular time of year. Um, they talked about, and this is interesting too, where he said, you know, Hank, uh, you know, he talked about Fred himself having a toothache and, and, uh, they'd gone in Hank's truck. So he couldn't go to a dentist unless Hank took him. And Hank made the comment after barely, you know, making any note that he'd had a toothache. He says, Hank replied that God or the devil could not get him away from there. Interesting about the night's events that happened later. Uh, <laughs> in terms of in terms of the devil or, or devil-like creatures, I suppose. Um, so they talked about eating and... Um, see, now, this is interesting, too. Now, Hank, though apprehensive, was still determined. We had been hearing... This is very interesting. He says, we had been hearing noises in the evening for about a week. We heard a shrill, peculiar whistle each evening. We could hear it coming from one ridge and then hear an answering whistling from another ridge. We also heard a sound which I could best describe as a booming, thumping sound, just like something hitting itself on its chest. The whistling, of course, we know that the creatures do from, you know, Native American stories and legends. And we actually have a recording, Tom, of that thumping, chest thumping. Very gorilla-like, Forrest. What do you think? Everybody's quiet. Well, I think <laughs> I'm still here. Uh, I, I set my phone on mute because I don't want y'all to think I'm strangling cats over here. Um, it, I, I would think that they would, uh, you know, they're, I, they're primates, so they're gonna they're they're gonna do primate things. Gorillas beat on their chests. Uh, I I don't think it would be uh, unheard of for uh, Bigfoot to beat on their chests. Um, so I don't know if I sent I mean, you. They do, I don't know if I sent you that recording. I have recordings, a recording of that sound. The thumping yeah, sound? A, yeah. Yeah, and, it's and a it, very distinctive, it's a very distinctive sound with gorillas. And uh, <clears throat> when you hear them do it, you can, um, you can, you readily, uh, you know, recognize that it's just, just beating. Yeah. yeah it, it's very, it's very, again, it goes back to those details. There's some very interesting details that, um, you know, now up to this point, apparently they'd never seen one of the creatures on these footprints. So they had no idea what the footprints were. And then to hear, well, the whistling, of course, is one thing, but this chest thumping, that's something entirely, I mean, why, if you're going to make up a story, why would you add something like that into it? Well, exactly. you wouldn't. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, other, pe other people are not going to be, uh, familiar with what primates do no no and when no. i say primates yes yes we're primates but when i'm talking about primates i'm talking about uh obviously humans don't go around beating on the chest well uh, let me retract that some people do but, <laughs> well <know>. yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh but uh for the most part normal people do not do that no. uh but 
gorillas do, and they make it's a very distinctive noise that they make. And um, you know, um, you know, when the silverbacks do it to each other, it's it's actually um, I don't want to say it's not actually an act of aggression, but it's like uh, you know I'm the bigger guy and I can do this, and uh, it's, uh, it's 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 a, it's a display. It's a threatening. It's a display, but it's a threatening display in one sense. But it's, you know, not uh, not vicious or uh, and that. But you know, it can get that way if the other other guy doesn't uh, <laughs> take heed. So, um, you know, I think that it's the same thing with uh, Bigfoot. So, you know, and the whistles and all that. You know, um, they 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 seem to do a variety of primate things. I mean, they act like chimpanzees. They do gorilla things, and they make noises like all of them, even uh, some of the lower order uh, simians. So, I mean, I, I, I go back to the same old thing. They're an enigma. They're yeah. uh, a accumulation of a lot of uh, different uh, Yeah, things. clearly some of the behavior is definitely in chimp and gorilla-like, you know, while others aren't. Every now and then you'll hear somebody say something uh, as far as them hearing stuff in the woods, it sounded like something beating its chest, but you just don't hear about it very often. So here exactly. he goes. So here he goes on and talks about the first time they saw one. He says, "Hank asked me to accompany accompany him to the spring about a hundred yards from our cabin to get some water, and suggested we take our rifles uh, to be on the safe side, which is you know good idea in those parts of the country." We walked to the spring, and then Hank yelled and raised his rifle. At that instant, I saw it. It was a hairy creature, and he was about 100 yards away on the other side of the little canyon, standing, on a, standing by a pine tree. It dodged behind the tree and poked its head out from, side to, uh, from the side of the tree. Sorry. At the same time, Hank shot. I could see the bark fly out from the tree uh, from each of his three shots. Some say that that's quite a distance to see bark fly, but I saw it. Well... You know, and he may have misjudged the distance. I mean, you, the rifles they had, I'm sure, were open sight rifles, so they weren't going to shoot something that they couldn't see. Um, you know, so if he could see where he was placing his shots, then he would could have seen the bark fly also. Um, he says, the creature I judged to have been about seven feet tall with blackish brown hair. Now, the two creatures I saw when I was 16, I would have said had the same hair color. It was kind of a blackish brown color. Um, not out, you know, not out of the question. Uh, it disappeared from our view for a short time, but then we saw it running fast and upright about 200 yards down the little canyon. I shot three times before it disappeared from view. So apparently this was the incident that ticked these creatures off. Um, you know, that's something we, I've been told is to never shoot at one. Okay. Well, one thing he mentions there that a lot of people mention now that's well known is how it kind of peeks around from behind the tree. Right. It, it dodged behind the tree and then sort of looking out to see what was, what these guys were doing. Okay. So then they go. he goes on, Nightfall found us in our pine log cabin. Uh, the timber wouldn't have been pine. It would have been, you know, spruce or dug fir, one of those kinds of uh, trees. Oh, excuse me. My throat's a little dry today, guys. All right, let me go on here. Okay, so the cabin was very sturdy. It stood for years afterwards um, and was visited but visited by many sightseers. So people talk about, oh, the cabin was lost. Nobody ever knew where it was. Well, apparently not because 
<coughs> they said it had uh, many visitors over the years. So let's see. Some of the stuff just isn't real important. He says, um, yeah, he says, a few years ago, this was in the 1960s, it burned to the ground. Circumstances of the fire, I do not recall. <clears throat> the cabin, we had a long bunk bed in which two could sleep feet to feet. So it was apparently a apparently long cabin. Um, let's see. And, and you know, if you want to read this story, folks, you can go down and read, you know, it gives a description of the cabin and, um, so it says after a while, they each settled down, uh, and fell asleep. Uh, about it, about midnight, they were all awakened. Hank, who was sleeping on the floor was yelling and kicking. Uh, but the noise that had awakened us was tremendous thud against the cabin wall. Some of the chinking, you know, the mud they put between the logs to keep the, uh, their, the warm air in and the cold air out had been knocked loose from between the logs and fell across Hank's chest. He had his rifle in his hand, was waving it back and forth, and as he kicked and yelled, apparently uh, he, it was quite a shock for him to be woke up this way. Um, it says, Hank, Hank always slept with his gun nearby. It was a Remington automatic, uh, and, and Fred's was a 3030 Winchester, he said, which he still has. He says, I helped get the chinking off him. It must have been a pretty good-sized chunk of this mud that fell on him if he had to help get it off him. Um, then we heard a great commotion outside. It sounded like a great number of feet trampling and rattling over a pile of our unused shakes. We grabbed our guns. Hank squinted through the space left by the chinking. By actual count, we only saw three of the creatures at one time, but it sounded like there were many more. So there was no idea how big the group was. Um, so this was the start of the famous attack. Uh, which so much has been written in Washington and Oregon papers about throughout the years. It says, most accounts of giant boulders, this is interesting too, this is one that always gets kind of misconstrued. Most accounts tell of giant boulders being hurled against the cabin, and some say even fell through the roof, but this was not quite the case. There were very few large rocks around that area, and I can attest to that. There weren't, there weren't a lot of large rocks around that area, around the, where the cabin was. There were mostly, I would say, um, the biggest ones you might have found would have been basketball size, usually baseball or softball size. That was kind of the norm around there. Um, let's see. He says, uh, he says, it is true that many smaller ones were hurled at the cabin, but they did not break through the roof, but hit with a bang and rolled off. Some did fall through the chimney of the fireplace. Some accounts state that I was hit on the head by a rock and knocked unconscious. This is not true. And and I know some of these documentaries and films they've made about this have definitely added things in that didn't happen. I mean, they, they didn't follow the story very closely. Um, he says the only time we shot our guns that night was when the creatures were attacking the cabin. And this must have been deafening. And they're in a cabin that's probably just big enough, you know, for these five guys to be in there. And they're shooting their rifles. Can you imagine the sound, uh, what that would do to your ears? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Especially over and over again. Oh, yeah. Well, he says, when they would quiet down for a few minutes, we would quit shooting. So it makes you wonder how many times they were shooting. Um, he, let's see. He says, I told the rest of the party that maybe if they, were, if they saw we were only shooting when they attacked, they would might realize that... Uh, we were only defending ourselves. 
We could have had clear shots at them through the opening left by the chinking, um, but apparently they didn't. They didn't shoot, you know, through the opening in the side of the cabin, which I'm not sure why they didn't, but... Um, he says, we did shoot, however, when they climbed up on our roof. We shot round after round through the roof. We had to brace um, the hewed log door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed. The creatures were pushing against it, and the whole door would vibrate from the impact. You know, Tom, we, we've talked to people who've had very similar things happen, where they're in some kind of a structure, and the creatures have tried to get in through the door at them. Okay, I guess everybody's listening. Um, okay, sorry, I'm trying to get by here. We fired, we responded by firing more rounds through the door. They pushed against the wall of the cabin as if trying to push the cabin over. This was pretty much impossible. Uh, as previously stated, the cabin was made very sturdy. Uh, he says, Hank and I did most of the shooting. The rest of the party cowered or crowded to the far end of the cabin, guns <laughs> in their hands. Yeah, so these two guys are shooting like crazy. The rest, the other three guys are hiding in the corner of the cabin. Um, and they, they seem stunned and incredulous. The attack continued the remainder of the night with only short intervals in between. You know, it kind of reminds me of when we were at the Clark Ranch. We weren't attacked, but, you know, it was an all-night thing. And, and the creatures just kept, period. they, they kind of, there'd be short breaks and then they would come back around, and then they'd leave for a bit, and then they'd come back. It was just, it was kind of a very similar kind of behavior. Thank goodness we hadn't, didn't have guns and weren't shooting at them because we didn't have a cabin. Well, the way he talks about it, they would only do something if the Sasquatch attacked, which is why they didn't shoot out where the kink right. had been uh, knocked out. Yeah, exactly. He says the most profound and frightening experience occurred when one of the creatures, being close to the cabin, reached an arm through the chinking space and seized one of our axes by the handle. And apparently this is uh, a much written about incident and a true one. Before the thing could pull the axe out, I swiftly turned the head of the axe upright and it was caught on the logs. Um, and at that time, he says, at the time, Hank shot and barely missing my hand. <laughs> Can you, I mean... You know the the level of fear you can you can feel the level of fear in his writing when they talk about things like that one, and you can imagine they were so frightened and excited he grabs the axe handle so it wouldn't take the thing out and the and his buddy shoots at the same time almost hitting his hand. You have to be terrified to have something like that happen. Right, he said the creature let go and I pulled the handle back and put the axe in a safe place. And then he goes on talking about, uh, you know, his little song he was singing about, you know, them leaving him alone and all that kind of stuff. So, um, okay. Um, well, you know, you have to remember that there's other stories like the, the cowman story and then the other one where the uh, thing actually, the woman was out hanging up clothes. I forget where this happened. It was someone up in uh, <clears throat> Canada, there in British Columbia, where she was hanging clothes and the kids were playing and uh, they came running up to her and telling her that this uh, thing was coming across the the field and it literally uh, tracked uh, across the field and she took the the, la the sh a sheet from the laundry and held it in front of the children because she really felt like it was coming after the children 
And, um, I mean, it came in the house and tore up the place. It and, did. And you hear stories all this time about them, them just wrecking havoc with places and reaching in windows. And so, I mean, that's not unusual behavior. And I don't think that those people, those men there would have been privy to a lot of these stories because, I mean, we a lot of these stories weren't even in print uh, and available to, uh, you know, nationwide or even internationally. Uh, yeah, so, exactly. I mean, how would they have known about all these stories to have created a, a story like that? So, exactly you know. right. Yeah, the details simply weren't out there. I mean, John Green was one of the first ones. Ivan Sanderson before him, but I'm, I'm trying to recall. Um, yeah, it just it just was not widely disseminated information. So especially in 1924, these stories didn't get published until the 1960s. So there really wasn't, like you said, there wasn't any knowledge of this stuff prior to that especially 1924. So, was, was that, go ahead, Gus. Oh, good. I was just going to, go ahead. I was just going to go on with the last part was of this. Just, was that the story where the husband had came home and he couldn't find his family and he saw their tracks leading away from the house? No, no, no. They, he was there. You're, you're talking about the... Okay. Well, well, now, there was one story, the cow man, that the father was actually there, but the one that I, then I started relating... That was a, that was an uh, that thing actually the the cowman story actually the father was there and uh, had uh, uh, they had a long uh, I think like a, a several weeks of that thing bothering them and they mm-hmm. finally he told he worked for a lumber yard or a lumber mill something like that and the they he actually related the story to the people at work and then they actually the the owner I think or is it the owner's son if I remember it was correctly, it was the owner's son. Back. It was the owner's son because they came back. yeah, the owner had yeah, the owner had two the yeah, the owner had two children, uh, the son and a daughter, and a friend of mine because I you know I had no way of knowing if that story was real or not until um, the husband of the daughter contacted me and we chatted. In fact, I think we even had him on the show once, and uh, he said as far as he knew, that was a real story. The brother wrote the story. They yeah. made that into yeah. a movie called Something in the Woods you can find online. Right, right. Yeah, well, there's also the the, the, the second one that I related was uh, the one that actually occurred up in British Columbia, because I think the first one, the Calvin, was somewhere in uh, Washington or Co- Oregon. Cope- Copalis Beach, was Washington. Yeah. Okay. It was yeah. a Calvin of Copalis Beach. Second, the second story where the woman held a sheet up in front of the children was the one that occurred. <clears> she was... Uh, she, I think, was half uh, in, uh, oh, you know, that was in British. That was in British Columbia. Yeah, yeah it was that in British was, Columbia. That was the Ruby and, Creek and incident. Yeah, and uh, David was correct uh, that uh, the father came home mm-hmm. and uh, the house was completely, uh, and you know, erect, and that it had gotten into some salmon that they had right, salted had and broke the barrel open the barrels and over ate and... the, yeah, and ate the salmon, and he followed. He didn't know what happened to his family until he found the the footprints and the tracks. And she had actually taken the children and fled down, uh, you know, I think a creek bottom or something, and uh, went to a, a relative's house. Right, so right. Uh, they were all safe and sound. But they left after that. They weren't going to stick around. They left. Okay, so, so let's, let's move I, on. I and, wouldn't either. <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on and wrap this up. It says the attack ended just before daylight. Just as soon as we were sure it was light to come, enough to come out and see, we came cautiously out of the cabin. 
It was not long before I saw one of the ape-like creatures standing about 80 yards away near the edge of Ape Canyon. I shot three times and it toppled over the cliff, um, down into the gorge some 400 feet below. And I can tell you, that's it, it, it's very narrow at the head of the canyon and it's deep and very steep. So if anything fell in there, you're not going to go down after it. It's just not going to happen. Um, then Hank said that we should get out of there as soon as possible and not bother our packer supplies or equipment out. They, so they left everything. <clears throat> he said, it's better lose, to lose the equipment than our lives. Uh, we were all too, only too glad to leave. So they left, now we're talking 1924, they left about $200 worth of supplies. That was a lot of money back then. So, um, And then it goes, you know, he goes on to finish it up by saying he tried to persuade everyone not to say anything. Uh, but Hank suit, Hank suit let the cat out of the bag when he talked to the ranger at Spirit Lake. So that's, I, what do you guys think? I mean, that's... Uh... Will, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. After that event that night, they, they didn't go back down there, did they? No, they or, left. Or am I wrong? They left and never went back. That's what I thought. Yeah. Well, well would you want to go back? I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you you might take a pretty big group with you, well-armed maybe, but, you know. Well, now... well yeah, but I mean, I, I think I would have gotten the hint, you know, get the heck out of here. Oh, yeah. So, and stay away. <laughs> well, you know, now they, okay. they only saw three at a time, but they thought there was a lot more of them. So we don't know how big that group was. It could have been pretty sizable. Well, <laughs> three Bigfoot at one time is a pretty... Uh, That's enough know. all by itself, yeah. Really? Well, guys, let's go around the table. What do you think? Real or fake? David, we'll start with you. I think it's a real case. Um, the way they described them, even how they acted, the way they did things, I, I think it's legit because a lot of things you hear today, they're describing back then. Right. Forrest, what do you think? Oh, I think it was a real story. I've never doubted it. And you brought up a lot of great points, especially the one where all the details of this account were simply not out there at that time. Not until 40 years later was this information put in any kind of books or printed form. Yeah. I mean, that's just comparing it to other stories that, you know, right. uh, that we've heard that they've uh, done. And, you know, so those gentlemen would not have been privy to that information. So, and there's just, there's just too much there that, that so many people encounter today. So yeah, too many accurate details. Chuck, what do you think? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of validity with, with things that happened and the things that they described. But I, I think, you know, if they, if they had a pretty good gold mine there, and never went back. I, I think that's a lot of validity to, to the story too, as well. That's so, a great yeah, point. Yeah, that's a true story. Yep, I think so too. All right, folks, we're going to end it here. Uh, like I said, if you if you look at Fred Beck's book, and I, I think there are copies available out there, it's it's not the greatest literary piece because he goes on in the into the later chapters and. It's all his, oh boy, does he? It, yeah, yeah. It's all his own opinion and conjecture, and it sounds pretty crazy. Uh, so we try to stick with facts of a story. We get the story and pick it apart. Um, 
And again, I will post because people said, oh, well, you know, nobody was ever able to prove that the mine existed and on this, on and on. And in the back of his book, he actually has this location notice. And I will put that on the, the JRG Bigfoot Research page on Facebook uh, when this show posts. So with that said, thanks for joining us, everyone. Great job, guys. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's William, J-E-V-N-I-N-G at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open.